This episode is sponsored by The Path, the coach-guided membership designed to help you make alcohol small and relevant in your life by removing your true desire to grab that next drink. Our science-based, compassion-led program allows you not only to shift your behavior and your relationship around alcohol, but more importantly, uncover and reprogram your subconscious conditioning and neural connections that have been keeping you stuck for years. With daily live breakthrough coaching, an intimate and supportive community, regular peer-to-peer connection calls, and a complete vault of resources, this is where your path to total freedom and effortless enjoyment of your new way of life begins. Join us at NakedMindPath.com. Hi, this is Annie Grace with this Naked Mind podcast, and I'm here with Catherine. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Good. How are you? Great. So good. So glad to be here. Oh, yay. Me too. I'm so glad to see you. Um, So why don't you sort of take us back to the beginning in your relationship with alcohol, like your first drink or early days? What was that like? Yeah, um, I mean, I have drank alcohol since high school, um, just like pretty much everyone has a story about that. And it wasn't a big deal for me um, as far as like an addiction or a bad habit that I wanted to quit. Um, I was, my dad is a firefighter and a paramedic in DC and my mom's a nurse. So um, when I was growing up, we didn't really learn good skills about how to take care of ourselves. We were mostly all about, you know, the family was all about showing up for other people and being in public service. So um, I think when I reflect back on, you know, when I started to generate these bad habits, that's probably where it began. So um, no, I was drinking in college. I went to Colorado College in Colorado Springs, actually, and uh, went down to graduate school <laughs> in Texas. Um, and uh, I've been with my boyfriend since um, the very first Wednesday of college. So we're like the world's worst one night stand. <laughs> and we're uh, we're about to celebrate 22 years together. So um But he and I, you know, we used to go out and party all the time and drink and, um, you know, on weekends and during the week and it was no big deal. But um, I remember when I started to experience like blackouts, when we moved, um, he was getting his PhD at Columbia. So we moved to New York City and I didn't really know anybody there. Um, I hadn't really gotten a job yet. Um, I worked in a couple of places. I was a crime scene investigator Um, at the Austin Police Department. And then I was working at the medical examiner's office in New York. And it wasn't really full time. I got laid off a couple of times. And, you know, I was just kind of hanging out. And um, I started to experience these blackouts. And I really didn't like it. It didn't make me feel safe. Um, You know, I also have a gluten allergy. So I would like, my friends would be drinking beer all day, watching movies or go to, um, football games and I tried to hang on with them like look bad and strong and when you're drinking gin and tonics at the same rate as people drinking beer um, can lead to some problems so again I didn't really see a a, like a a downfall it wasn't the alcohol's fault it was me that was really starting to um, that needed to get in more control and be more responsible um but then I had kids and I started working full time in uh, medical examiner's office as a death investigator and forensic anthropologist and started having to figure out how to balance, you know, having two kids, house, um, a job. And um, 
that's when, when my kids got a little bit older, when I wasn't breastfeeding or like really taking care of them like full time, um, I started having a little more free time for myself and, and definitely noticed that I, my drinking started ramping up. So, um, you know, <laughs> when you get into older age, like, so I, you know, turned 30, um, I moved, my husband got a job here. We live on the Eastern shore of Maryland. So, um, we got a job down here. Um, I started working for a medical examiner's office that required like constant working. So I was on call almost all the time. Um, we took our trucks home, we had cell phones. So that's when I really started to get this um, really heavy duty over responsibility for my mm -hmm. job. And um, that's when I, you know, I would find that I would come home from a hard day at work. And, and of course we have a really heavy duty, right? We're handling all of the deaths um, in the state and our jurisdiction. So we're responding to scenes um, of sometimes they're really tragic and horrible. We're talking to families, um, we're communicating with funeral homes, we're reviewing photographs, we're assisting with autopsy procedures. So of course, you know, that's a difficult job, right? <laughs> no one can argue with that. But when you start to kind of rope wow. in this, um, <laughs> this like over responsibility, um, you know, I didn't think anybody could do the job as good as me. So mm -hmm. we were very mm -hmm. short staffed. And, um, you know, when you're short staffed, you started, you show up more, you try to do more things with, with fewer people. So I was working really hard um, for not a lot of money and um, you know, you, you get paid over time, right? So you get into this vicious cycle where you're getting paid more. So you start wanting to continue to get that paycheck but then you're not showing up at home and being able to take time off or use the money for anything positive or good. And then your family stops expecting you to show up, you know, like mom's always working, mom's always gonna be responding. So, um, I got into this pretty nasty cycle where um, I would come home from work and I would um, use alcohol to be my, the way I was winding down. And um, I also started to notice around that time, like I was having a really hard time kind of communicating with other people about normal stuff. <laughs> so mm -hmm. when you're only working, um, when you're working in a job that is very unique and niche, um, it's hard to talk to people about anything but dead people. And, um, you know, I love cold case investigation. I love forensic anthropology. It's what my degree is in. I love medical legal death investigation and I can talk about it all day. But when I start to get into social experiences with people who want to talk about their kids and like the yeah. weather and sports, I was like, this is really awkward. So, um, you know, I also used alcohol pretty heavily at social events. Um, because I felt uncomfortable kind of like reaching out to people um, on a normal basis. Yes. So, um, <laughs> and so um, I did end up getting diagnosed with PTSD for my doctor. I talked to my primary care doctor probably about um, around like 2018 about kind of some troubles I was having. I never really wanted to admit that I was not being strong. I'm using air quotes if anybody's listening. Um, I always thought that I needed to show up, like this is what I'd signed up for working in death investigation. Um, 
you know, this is what I, I signed up for and I should be brave and strong and stop being a wimp um, and deal with it. And um, so when I started to kind of feel broken and trapped in this life that I created for myself, you know, I didn't want to give up my job. I love my job, but I did want to know how to live better and be able to still be a mom and a wife and uh, somebody that had friends outside of the job and um, somebody that was healthy. You know, I love to work out and exercise and um, I couldn't really commit to my exercise habits or my nutritional habits. Everything was kind of just broken and I kept trying to bend these things to to fit into this life that I wanted that and everything just felt like it was cracking mm. um so I I talked to my doctor of course she recommended AA um which was absolutely out of the question for me and I don't know I've talked to some other public service people some first responders who have been through AA and for me I just I didn't feel like it was a an option because I'm a part of um, the community and I'm respected and look to be someone that that serves the community. So I didn't think I could be anonymous mm. and, you know, admit that I had a drinking problem using air quotes again. <laughs> yeah. So um, she also recommended that I find a new job, which was also completely out of the question for me because I, yeah. you know, this is my life. This is how right. I identify myself first and foremost whenever I talk to anybody. And so that just felt like a total um, waste of time. I wasn't going to AA. I definitely wasn't going to find another job. And so my drinking got pretty bad um, for a little while. And I, I bought the snake in mind <laughs> one day, kind of just while I was in Barnes and Noble and I remember I brought it home. I don't know if you did this in high school, but I wrapped the book with like a grocery bag. Uh, yeah, totally. Like I did that. <laughs> yep. And like decorated it so nobody would know or see what I was reading. <laughs> and so it kind of sat there for a few months. Um, and I read it here and there while I was drinking wine at night. And um, I just, I, I didn't feel like anything was happening. And one day, as the universe does, it kind of worked out that I got, um, I found a position, a federal position working, um, you know, full-time virtually from home, um, no more on-call, no more shift work, no more holidays, no more overnights, no more weekends. Um, and I was doing cold case investigation full-time with unidentified human remains and, and missing persons. And that was gonna tick the box that the doctor said, you know, like this will help your PTSD symptoms, mm. just get out of that job. So I was like, you know, golden. And this is August of um, 2019 that I started this new position. So I immediately assumed while this was happening, the transition that like the drinking would just resolve itself, that I would come home and no longer want a glass or a bottle of wine, that I would come home and, you know, automatically feel more connected with my husband or my kids and I wouldn't be cranky anymore and, and all this would be fine but it wasn't right it that's not how this works and I hadn't actually changed anything except for my kind of my environment so um fast forward a couple of months while I was sleeping better you know I was still drinking really heavily and then COVID happened and I had horrible survivor's guilt because my friends around the country, my other death investigator friends are responding to this massive 
fatality incident where they're getting death calls, you know, at exorbitant rates and handling all these cases of decedents and not sleeping and working even more than they were before with even fewer people um, and fewer resources. So I felt really guilty for getting out of it kind of when I did. Um, and I think the straw that kind of broke the camel's back was, um, so my husband and I um, celebrate our anniversary at the end of June, it's coming up soon. And we had some friends come over and it was like a million degrees here. And they dropped a, one of those giant bottles of Hendrix gin off on my patio. And it's like this little, really pretty glass bottle and put some tonic water out there and a bunch of limes and just left it and didn't tell us. Well, <laughs> I go outside to take the dogs out and the glass bottle had just shattered in the heat. And oh, wow. I, yeah, <laughs> so. I don't cry over anything. That's a part of kind of this like thin candy shell that I've created for myself. I don't get sad. I'm never, you know, feeling emotions. Like we talk about how you can numb certain things when you're drinking. It turns out you're just numbing everything. Well, this caused me to completely melt down. And I cried for like a half an hour because this bottle of booze had broken and I couldn't drink it. And it was that moment that I finally realized like, okay, <laughs> cat, let's stop messing around here. And I really felt like um, I needed to show up for myself and actually start to take responsibility. And that's when, for some reason, the, um, the live alcohol experiment kind of was in my Facebook feed at that time. So the universe was kind of listening to what I needed and, and, and I signed up for it, um, you know, paid my money and, and got in that group and that July, 2022 or 2020, July, just completely, I mean, like those brief videos every day and the live coaching with the coaches and the community, like those three things just completely changed all of my thinking around. And I knew like before I thought I was completely alone and I was a loser and I was like, you know, I'd signed up for this life that I was leading. Well, no. All of those things were not true. All those beliefs that I had set up for myself were totally not true. And it was fine that I was, was struggling because I'm a human, right? And uh, so it didn't, I didn't completely you know, fix everything <laughs> right then and there, right? I did end up doing four live alcohol experiments before I um, really truly found freedom. But um, you know, every interaction that I had with with the naked, this naked mind coaches and the community from that day forward, like just helped me kind of grow and change as a person. Um, I like to call it like I had built this little cave underneath a rock when I was really hurting and when I had PTSD and burnout and I gathered all of the stuff on top of myself and I had this huge rock like covering me and over the last two years, I've been slowly digging my way out. And now I'm standing on top of that rock. And I'm like using all those experiences to like stand and shout on top of my rock about how good it can be if you just give yourself a chance. Oh, I love that so much. Um, I want to back up to a few areas of your story. Like you said something that really hit home for me. Well, first of all, just the word over responsibility, I just think is, <clears throat> it's just a word that 
like carries so much weight because like when we're in it, we just know you hear that word if you are being in over and maybe people are listening and like, yeah, no, that like hits, you know, hits home. And just what did that feel like for you? I remember, so um, for any responders out there who are listening or people that are in public service, like um, there's never enough help, right? You're always kind of trying to do this huge job, whatever that may be, firefighting or nursing or being a funeral director or, um, you know, being a pharmacist. I really, I like grabbed onto Jim Shovlin. He's another at the Snake and Mind coach. When he was in the live alcohol experiment, just because he was this other person that I knew like came uh, and showed up for his community. So when I was deep, like deep underneath my rock, um, I literally was stamping my feet when I was talking to my coworkers and like having a little baby meltdown like a toddler because I knew things should be a certain way, but they weren't. And I was the only one, and this is not true obviously, but I was the only one that could fix it and do it right. And it didn't matter if I was, you know, I had slept for four hours in the last three days or there physically was not space for me to drive, you know, a certain amount of decedents to the autopsy to, you know, where we needed to be. Um, you know, you just have these very specific resource issues that many people I'm sure who are listening can understand. And you see this, the way it should be, and then there's the way it is, and you can't change that. And no one will ever be able to change that sort of thing. And the change had to come from within me. And so I think once I finally, once I recognized that I was in that, you know, bend it till it breaks mode, and that I could in fact envision creative ways to, to address the issues that we were having rather than stamping my foot and having a meltdown. Um, that feels a lot more powerful um, than what it felt like before. It was, it was miserable, mm-hmm. absolutely frustrating and miserable. Like you're a four-year-old and you can't have a lollipop. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's so... It's so true and doesn't get us anywhere good, really. (laughs) Um, The other thing that you said that I thought was really hit me was, you know, your kids stop expecting you to show up for them. And I'm like, oh, I for sure remember. And even sometimes still find myself in times of just overworking, you know, outworking the anxiety or whatever it is, the fear or doubt around being human and, you know, using work even as a, as one of those tools to self-medicate. And yeah, that just like, that's just so, so true. Like when, when your kids stop asking, like in the moment, it feels like, oh, good. Like you don't even notice (laughs) because you just feel a little bit more peace, but then you realize, wow, like I'm not being asked to read at night or I'm not being asked to play, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, the alcohol for me, and this isn't, this may not be true for everybody, but for me, the alcohol was the one big 
thing, the one big domino that I had to remove and knock down before I could start to actually build good habits and skills to address those things. Like the mama guilt is real. Mm-hmm. The daddy guilt is real too. I mean, my husband has it all the time, but what we do with those feelings is what makes us, you know, reasonable human beings and powerful people. And, um, you know, I used to just explain it away to my kids and I'm, I'm pretty sure this is what my parents did too. My dad would work at Christmas or my mom would be, you know, um, she would work like, I think she worked 48 hours in whatever, you know, every week. So she would be gone on the weekend sometimes and they would just explain it like, well, this is what it is. This is our Mm -hmm. jobs. And that's fine. That is what their jobs were. But if they could have told me like, I'm doing this because of that. And and the way I explain it to my kids is a little more empowering. But I remember Annie, you did a video. um, I think it's in the live alcohol experiment that talks about, and this was huge for me. I would come home from work and the house would be trashed. Oh yeah. My husband's a teacher, so he's off during the summer and he calls it Camp Sandy. Everybody's off. They have a great time during the summer. I still have to work. (laughs) And it used to drive me nuts and actually make me angry. I would come home and the house would be a mess. And I would come in and, you know, like start cleaning up at them, you know? (laughs) Yeah, like loud cleaning. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But in fact, like it's proof that they, yeah, (laughs) totally aggro. It's proof that they love, you know, they're having a great time. They're enjoying Camp Sandy and and still. So we made it a game. We ended up, I would come home and give cuddles and hugs and and then we would clean up together and they would tell me the stories about what they did in Camp Sandy that day. And that little switch was just so empowering and helpful. And then I got to be a part of the day too, even though I couldn't be there Hmm. because I was working. Oh, that gives me chills. I love that so much. Yeah, yeah. In the, in the video, I remember like I would walk into the house and it would be just totally a mess. And, you know, my husband's not a teacher, but he generally is like the primary parent. Um, and so although he works with me, it is very much that he's much more part-time. And so I'd walk in and it would just And I would like the meaning that I had in my mind that I had all this proof for was um, (laughs) that, you know, nobody cared about me because if they did, it wouldn't look like this. Like I'm just off their radar. They just don't even, you know, I just don't even matter. And they wouldn't be leaving all this for me. And of course, like that was when I really looked at it critically, like, is that true? And how does it make me feel? And how does it make me behave? Like, yeah, it made me (laughs) loud, aggravated cleaning at them. I like how you said that and feel terrible. Right. And then, you know, immediate disconnection instead of connection at the time when I wanted to be connected. And it was just off my radar that I was choosing that I was choosing all of it. I was choosing that thought. I was choosing that, you know, the belief that, that they didn't care. I was choosing all of it. And, um, unraveling that for me was like, you know, the thought that I replaced it with was if, if the house is clean, that means my kids are out of the home, you know, and, and like, this is fleeting. This is really fleeting this time in life with the kids are home. You know, it's a, it's a small part of our lives when we were at home with our parents. It's a small part of their lives when they're at home with us. And, 
And I just realized in that moment, like, I would not want to be coming home to a clean house if it meant that they weren't here. And so like that, of course, made me feel so grateful for um, the mess, which is nuts to say. And yeah, you have to practice it for sure. Like yeah. it's not like a one and done, like, oh, that was so easy. And now everything's super, but All right, mess. <laughs> well, yeah. and so people in the, in the death field or people who respond to death calls know how short life is yeah and I see a lot of stuff that's awful and people who don't get the chance to like turn their lives around or have that one last moment with their kids um shoot I've seen plenty of colleagues who have just wasted their time working and being burned out and being miserable and you know what does that accomplish nothing so i i know how short life could be i you know i could get hit by a truck tomorrow so what i want to do in this day in this moment is actually really you know leave a legacy to my kids so that they can be empowered so my husband can remember me as you know like a loving person and not a death investigator who was at home for two hours every once in a while um because while I'm very fortunate to be able to do this work and, and share my experience and my education and my background with the families that I serve, um, it isn't, you know, my entire life. You know, my kids are my entire life and my, my dogs and my house and my gardening and um, all this the wonderful world that's out there. So I'm so thankful to be like, to recognize that because it all comes from within. Mm -hmm. and I don't think I knew that I in like I'm remembering back on that part that time where I was stamping my feet <laughs> and wanting everything to work the right way I truly believe that it was everyone else's fault that no one was doing it right that it needed to be my way or no way yeah and in fact it was it was all me it was all my perspective yeah yeah, it's amazing. And like, when we get that perspective back that like, we're actually choosing this belief, even if we can prove yes. it, like we can really prove it. We can argue it all day long. But when we realize, wait, like I'm choosing this and I could choose something else and I could feel better with my own life, you know, especially when it's a belief that is very um, righteous in a way, you know, like around getting other people to change or like is the, the, the house or, you know, whatever it is, you're just feeling like, Oh, very righteous. And in my way is the best way to do it. And, yeah. um, and it's, it's yeah. just so amazing when you have that moment of like, wait, wait, I, I could have changed this all along and say, like, I don't have to change anybody else. I just get to, that drives me nuts. It's all that time kind of not wasted, but just like frustration and anger yeah. and breaking and when it was all up here <laughs> to yeah. begin with right <laughs> and it's it's so off your radar when you're in it and yeah. it just like sometimes I, I feel like it just takes at least for me it just took someone showing me that you know and mm -hmm. I think as as coaches we get the opportunity to just show someone else and just like very gently hold up that little mirror to say hey like that pain you're in like you're choosing it let me show you how and you know that <laughs> And I think obviously it needs to be done in the right way so that it isn't like aggressive and painful, but I think that's so beautiful. Um, 
I wanted to talk to you about what you said about like not crying. And I'm curious if that's still true for you now or if that was only true for you before or, or how that is in your life now. Um, you know, what's so funny is my son last night, actually, my husband's away for work right now. And so my son is sleeping with me. He's eight. And I know that's not going to last much longer. So I'm, yeah, I do that every time. It. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like, of course you can't. Um, but he actually said last night, he's like, you know, I've noticed that grownups don't cry. And um, I always thought he said this, I always thought that you were always happy. Um, and I said, nobody, you know, we have, we, we use the emotions wheel that, um, that we talk a lot about in coaching. So I have this wheel that talks about all the emotions and it, it allows my children to give kind of definitions and descriptions to their feelings. So yeah. we had used the emotions wheel a week ago when he was feeling scared about something. And um, I said, no, you know, grownups feel a lot of emotions, but sometimes they they don't share them with other people. They keep them private. And there's a lot of different reasons for that. And he, he said, well, I hope you can share your feelings with me, mommy. Aww. That's so <laughs> sweet. So sweet. And I told him, I said, yeah, I've been working on doing that for the last couple of years. It's being more open with my feelings. So um, I don't, I still don't really cry. It's something that I'm definitely, um, I would like to. I remember when my husband, my boyfriend at the time, um, we're in college I would just sit in bed and cry and he would hold me and I can't remember why it happened but you know that's how I knew he was a keeper because he let me just kind of expose my emotions um, and then that stopped one day you know and I'm still kind of working on that that's the really cool thing about this process is that once you take that numbing agent away and kind of allow yourself the openness um, and the vulnerability to share, even with yourself. So um, yeah. I talk to my clients a lot of the time about, you know, like they don't feel comfortable being vulnerable in groups or with other people, even therapists, but you can be vulnerable with your journal and with yourself and get all that junk out of your head. And, and that's where I'm slowly like, even, you know, in the middle of the day, I'll, I'll have this thought, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was totally limiting me and my understanding of myself and the way I, I like interact with my husband. I'll write it down, you know, and I'll work on it later. And so that's still happening, but yeah, it's, hard. Gonna, it's hard. <laughs> it is hard. And I just, I, I so relate to that because gosh, I think it was just years and years. And I certainly wasn't in, in, in a field like you're in. And I understand that like the, the walls of protection and the the resistance to feeling would have to go up in a way way bigger way um i mean i just read about something in a novel or i see something on tv and i can be crippled for like days and so i i really understand that need to protect yourself to be able to do the work that you do uh but i remember for me like just not crying for so long and inside of me it felt like well if I was going to start, like, I would never stop. Like it would, it would sweep me away and it would go on forever. 
and it would all come out and it would never be over. And it would just be one of those just hysteria. Like for like, I would, I would just never be able to do anything again. Cause I would just cry. And, and when I finally um, got into some coaching myself, where we really had to go back and look at some of the stuff um, and just, you know, real sit with those emotions and like, and I just allowed, allowed it. I mean, it was brutal. Like it yeah. was so convulsing and intense and like primal and like just so intense, but it didn't last forever. And it took me probably, I'd say almost a year of, of working in that level of intense reflection. And it was, it's funny because it's like, you're in that sort of space and going through some of that really intense stuff. And it's like, your whole life is, it, it's, it's just like, I mean, you are really making an effort to, to focus on, on some of the things that are holding you back. But anyway, now I like cry at the drop of a hat and it's always just like, you know, get teared up, feel it. And then it passes and, and there's no mm-hmm. fear behind it anymore. You know, there's no fear behind that. Um, so anyway, just to share that, because I think it's yeah hard, but I think it's it hard. It's worth it. I think there are things that kind of come to light on a daily basis for me. Um, that I didn't realize was actually like a guard that I had put up um, that I, like I said, I still am clear about. So when the school shooting happened, um, this last one, since there's Mm -hmm. some all the time, um, somebody had said to me, and this was completely unrelated, but it happened. And then another human being said like, your job must be so cool. Mm. And I was like, you know, it's just some person at Wawa at the gas station and I'm wearing my work shirt and they say my job is cool. But so my first initial feeling is how dare you? You know, I have to see dead children. I have to like autopsy five-year-olds who were shot by assault rifles. Mm-hmm. And then my next feeling was, oh my gosh, I'm such a big baby. This person thinks my job is cool. So they could do a better job at my job than I could and I'm a big wimp crying about this thing that happened so then I felt ashamed for being mad at this random person that just said a thing that came to their mind that they don't even know what they're talking about so when I let I let the whole thought kind of play out and I wrote it down and started to do the act technique on it about how it made me feel and I don't think, had I not had that tool at my disposal to really think about it, all I would have been left with was the anger at this guy mm-hmm. saying something that wasn't meant to hurt my feelings. And it's not meant to, you know, make me feel bad. He just thinks that forensics are cool because that's what he sees on TV. But, mm-hmm. and I was able to kind of, at the heart of it, I realized I was feeling shameful that I was you know, that I had been taught to not feel sad about dead kids. Right. But it's sad. It's a sad situation and it's okay that I'm sad about it. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's really profound. Um, just for people listening, the ACT technique is pretty simple. 
it's just, you know, becoming aware of that, that thought, like I'm frustrated. How dare he think my job is cool. I have to see dead kids. And then looking at that thought by itself and just asking yourself, how does that thought make me feel? And how does it make me behave? Which shows your brain the pain of that thought. And then your brain very naturally will stop thinking something that causes its pain. But then we go a step further and really think about, okay, well, what, what would be a thought that I could replace it with that would feel better and make me behave better? And that can be a little bit hard. So the A for awareness is just discovering what that, that thought is that's causing you the pain. The C is how that thought makes you feel and behave. And then the T is a turnaround, which is what, what would be a better thing that I could practice that isn't too impossible to believe. It has to be believable. And then we usually try to check our work with how does that turnaround make me feel? Does it make me feel better or not? Because if it doesn't, it's not, it's not a good turnaround. It's not one that I would want to practice. And how does it make me behave? So that's kind of it in a nutshell, but it is a tool that like we use as coaches and, and ourselves just constantly all the time. I, I use know. it all the time. Just out of my brain now automatically goes to that when I feel snaggy and icky yeah. about something. I just I'm like, Ooh, my automatic reaction is something crummy, but then I really kind of check in and wonder why I'm feeling crummy and then how I can maybe make myself help myself turn those feelings into something useful. So what I ended up with um, on that was, I mean, this happens all the time, right? People are constantly telling me like, I would love to do that job. And I'm yeah. like, you couldn't do it. <laughs> you wouldn't like it. It's hot outside and people smell when they die. <laughs> Right. But instead of saying something gross and icky that that gas station person wouldn't understand anyway, is I've been able to create boundaries with people that do matter and try to kind of talk to me about my job so I can better explain myself to them because I'm never going to be able to explain myself to the gas station person. But if I can put my feelings to words with people that matter Mm-hmm. then then I feel like I've got an outlet and that that's really empowering. That's so good. That's so good. Um, why, why don't you tell us how you decided to become a coach? Oh man. So like I said, the only real, when I was doing the live alcohol experiments, um, the only real kind of person I connected with was Jim Shovelin, who's a pharmacist. And so um, I started looking around during that time for, we call ourselves last responders instead of first responders. And I was looking for, um, first I was looking for last responder resources and, and communities for talking about alcohol and wellness and mental health and there are zero. Um, and I did, I did find plenty of first responder um, opportunities and trainings and, um, you know, communities, a lot of AA based, a lot of religious based, which is fine. Um, but what I was looking for was something a little more science-based, um, research-based and, and kind of friendly. Um, a lot of the first responder communities are like suicide prevention. And so I found this just, it's, it was like nothing or like the worst case scenario um, intervention, you know, suicide prevention, intervention for drugs, 
um, sending people away for their alcohol use. And I love this. There's a huge movement for called Stop the Stigma, where we're kind of making mental health resources more familiar for first responders. But what I want to do, my goal with joining the coaching community is to really start the conversation in the last responder community and also help first responders feel more comfortable just plain being vulnerable. And so over the last, um, since I became a certified coach, all I'm doing is just talking about what I went through, um, how my job as a death investigator on call with two kids and a husband, you know, did not meld very well with my drinking career and how I did not, I never had the tools to really um, handle my feelings and emotions and this like whole work life balance is total bullshit. I hope it's okay that I cursed on here. Yeah, totally. <laughs> Bleep me out. But I really, I feel strongly about that. I mean, we are trained to do a job that does not happen from nine to five, Monday through Friday and exposes us to some really terrible stuff. And police officers and firefighters are committing suicide at astronomical mm -hmm. rates. And it's absolutely horrible. Um, and so I feel like for me, um, I, I became, this is a really long story for your question, but no, yeah, I think I want to hear it. I became, a, I wanted to become a coach and I'm uh, starting the conversation so that I can interrupt that spiral mm. way before it gets that bad. I love that so much. Such important work. Heal the, heal the healers, heal the people mm -hmm. who are, you know, doing that toughest, hardest work. It's just beautiful. Kat, I love it. So Thanks. let me ask you two questions to wrap us up, which is, first of all, if someone is interested in your coaching, where, where can they find you? So my coaching business is called Forensics Found, and it's basically, um, right now it's a website for all things um, forensics related. Um, I want to start, you know, really getting at the folks that are pre-career. So when they come into the job, part of their field training will involve, um, you know, going through preparations for, for, you know, being aware of your mental health and how to build tools to be more, um, to be more proactive against, you know, combating, combating burnout and PTSD. Um, for people that are practicing in the field that might have some habits that they don't like, like drinking, um, you know, a lot of responders engage in some pretty crummy <laughs> habits. So um, I think that the, this Naked Mind framework is quite useful for developing some better habits. Awesome. And then also folks that are retiring. So um, a lot of people in the forensic science field really, really feel like their entire um, identity is wrapped up in being a death investigator or a police officer, or a funeral director, you know, that's all they know about themselves. So even retirees can um, use kind of this framework that I'm setting up to, to um, help them li live the best life that they can. And so they can show up for their community that, you know, do the job to the best of their ability and, and not lose sight of themselves. So um, I've got some courses out that I'm developing that I hope to launch um, before the end of the summer. I'm going to start a podcast so I can start Amazing. telling. Yeah, um, I'm going to start telling last responder stories and how they got started and what they do to, you know, really feel better. And um, 
yeah, so it's all kind of coming together. And I'm also coaching um, in the live alcohol experiment in July. So um, I started my whole journey in July, 2020, oh, and I'm so going to cool. be a coach. Yeah. <laughs> so very excited. Well, that's just awesome. So Kat, let me ask you the question I always end these with, which is if you were going to go, you know, back to yourself, um, who was being told she needed to go to AA or quit her job and tell her about what life is like now, um, what would you say? Oh my gosh, this is amazing over here. And I think I was waiting for some sign or some thing. And I think I just needed to begin. So in order to begin, begin. Yeah, just begin. It's such a good one. I love that so much. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much for your time. This has just been awesome. Thanks, Annie. Thanks for listening. Hey, it's Scott Pinyard, head coach here at This Naked Mind. Are you ready to make instant changes to your drinking? The answer is not in restriction or deprivation, and you don't need more self-control. I am here to tell you that you can break your patterns and habits and finally feel liberated from alcohol. You can return to a life where alcohol is small and irrelevant for you. It's a non-issue. Take it or leave it. Annie has three secrets to control your drinking, and she and I are going to teach them all live in a special three-day free virtual event. Learn the three secrets to control your drinking and make changes instantly live with us. Don't miss this amazing event. Learn more and save your spot today at controlalcohollive.com. We can't wait to see you there. And as always, rate, review, and subscribe to this podcast as it truly helps the message reach somebody who might need to hear it today. 